as uh, Jesus goes about Galilee, his reputation for healing the sick and exercising demons spreads, and more and more people seek him out. The crowds that come to him grow so large that at one point, when he's teaching by the lake, he tells his disciples to have a boat ready just in case so that if the crowds press on him, he won't be crushed by those who long to see and touch and be touched by him. Even climbing a mountain to choose the 12 men who will be his inner circle of disciples is only momentary respite. As soon as Jesus comes down, the crowd is waiting, so insistent, so needy, that when he goes into a house, that's what it literally is in the Greek, not he goes home, but he goes into a house, He and his disciples are so busy helping those who are packed into the courtyard that they don't even have time to eat. The crowd is not the only group, however, that is paying close attention to Jesus. Both his family and scribes who come from Jerusalem are also intensely interested in and worried about his doings. Now, that the scribes are concerned about what Jesus is doing really doesn't come as much of a surprise. They are trained experts in Jewish law and scriptures, and as such, they are responsible for maintaining the sanctity of the faith and its practices, practices that Jesus seems to be constantly challenging. Not only does he actually sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners, but he also heals on the Sabbath, touches untouchable lepers, allows his disciples to forego traditions like the practice of fasting, and dares to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. You know, I can understand their anxiety. While we've been taught to see the scribes as the bad guys of the Gospels, think how disturbed we are when someone doesn't behave as we think they should in worship or when someone uses church property in a way that we consider improper, or even when someone decides to do things in a new way. Though we might acknowledge the value of doing that new way, it still makes us a little uncomfortable. It disturbs the status quo. And make no mistake, the scribes definitely recognize that Jesus has power. His ability to heal the sick and to exorcise demons was undeniable. But instead of seeing this power as a gift of God, the scribes come up with another explanation, that Jesus himself is under the power of Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan that means Lord of the Flies. Their charge is very serious, and Jesus wastes no time in responding. He confronts the men, speaking in words that challenge the logic of their conclusion. How can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. If Satan is casting out his own demons, Jesus says, he's finished. Then in an odd and rather violent parable, Jesus portrays himself as the one who is strong enough to subdue the strong man Satan and plunder his house, freeing those who have been bound by Satan's powers. As if that wasn't enough, 
Jesus goes on to suggest that the scribes have now gone too far. He says, truly I tell you, people, have, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Over the centuries, people have speculated about the nature of this eternal sin. But scholars seem to be in agreement that Jesus was actually being very specific here. Lutheran theologian David Loos writes, it seems that this sin revolves around rejecting God's good work in Christ as the work of the devil, failing to recognize God's Messiah, rejecting the new revelation of God in Christ, refusing to acknowledge the work of the Spirit of God to renew and redeem creation. These are what most scholars think Jesus is naming here. But that doesn't mean it's a one-time slip or anger in the heart. There's a sense of an ongoing rigidity or a constant setting one's face against God's activity that seems to be implied. Indeed, the sin Jesus seems to name is an ongoing, even permanent refusal to be open to the movement of the Spirit. And just to relieve any anxiety on your part, let me share the next thing that David says. You can't sin in this, in this way by accident. In fact, what Jesus is talking about is less something you do, an action or word, and more of a complete way of living, living in utter rejection of God. So if you're at all worried about committing this sin, I can assure you that you haven't. And that goes for any loved ones you have who may be in a place where they don't believe in God. I don't think God's done with them yet. So don't worry about that. Now, I've kind of gone off track here and I'm gonna go off track just a little bit more. Listen again to what Jesus says before he talks about an eternal sin. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemes they utter. In the Greek, this statement is even stronger. Truly I tell you that all will be forgiven the sons of humanity, the sins and the blasphemes that they have blasphemed. All will be forgiven, not might be forgiven, but will be forgiven. While Jesus is not saying that our sins and blasphemes do not have consequences, he is offering amazing grace indeed. All will be forgiven. Hold on to that promise, that truth in your heart. Short of complete and long-lasting and utter rejection of God, there is nothing, nothing that God cannot and will not forgive. Nothing. Back to the story at hand. As I noted earlier, the crowds and the scribes were not the only people concerned with Jesus. His family was too, very concerned. Not only were the religious authorities accusing Jesus of being under the influence of Satan, but also ordinary people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. Literally, he has stood outside. And they weren't just whispering this. They were saying it publicly. He has gone out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. 
So why do people think this? Obviously, Jesus' power to heal and to exercise demons was far from normal, but I suspect that there was more to it than that. In her commentary on this passage, Wendy Farley writes, it is an odd feature of Jesus' ministry that he is open to everyone. Gentiles, Jews, the poor, the demented, the sick, the working class, women, tax collectors, sexual outcasts. David Lowe expands on this. First, Jesus is defying norms about who's in and who's out. Folks possessed by a demon, those maimed or born with some physical limitation or defect, these kinds of people were often assumed to be cursed, to be not natural, or to have sinned, or to be suffering from the sin of their parents. Yet Jesus forgives and heals all who are in need. Everyone. No exceptions. Second, and moreover, he is putting the need of the people he encounters above the religious traditions that regulate the lives of the people. Make no mistake, these religious traditions are important, useful, and valuable, but they are a means to an experience of God and to greater abundance in life, not an end in themselves. And when we put following the rules ahead of meeting need, we've actually, even if accidentally, misused the very rules God gave us to help us flourish. This is why Jesus is called crazy. Whether his family was afraid for him or alarmed by his exorcisms or embarrassed by his actions, or maybe all of those, they decided that an intervention was needed. They're going to go and bring him home. Sadly for them, however, when they arrive at the house where Jesus is staying, they find themselves standing outside for quite some time, it seems. For upon hearing that his mother and brothers and sisters are outside, Jesus does not, as one might expect, drop everything and go to see them. Instead, he looks around at his disciples and at the misfits and the sick and the demon-possessed who are looking to him for help and says, here are my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as I told the children, Jesus is not rejecting his family. Instead, he is making the circle of his family wider, wide enough to include even those who may well have been rejected by their own families. Hmm. Maybe Jesus is out of his mind after all, especially when I think about where his radical behavior and inclusive love will lead to a painful death on a cross. Which leads me to wonder if maybe we are out of our minds as well, for we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Think about it. Who in their right mind would follow someone who ended up dying on a cross? Or would actually try to live like someone who said to turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, to love your enemies, and to forgive 70 times 7? Who in their right mind would trust someone who said that those who are poor, those who mourn, and those who are persecuted are blessed? 
we would. Who is so out of touch with reality that they would welcome everyone into their community without background checks? Or use their time and resources to feed hungry people without expecting anything in return? Or make space for homeless families in their building? Or go out of their way to help a stranger? We are. Who is crazy enough to listen to and trust the words of a book that is hundreds, even thousands of years old, or to confess their faults and failings and still believe that forgiveness is possible, or to come to pray and sing and listen for an hour or more every week with people they may or may not like or even know in the belief that this act will help them to be better people. And that would be us. Who is so out of their mind as to believe that a man who died on a cross long ago rose again and is alive and present with us? Who is so out of their mind as to trust in the guidance of some Holy Spirit? Who is so out of their mind that they believe that God loves everyone no matter what and that God sent Jesus to show us that? Who is so out of their mind so as to trust that even now God is working to make this broken world whole and to believe that God's grace and mercy and love will ultimately prevail? We are. Oh, we are. We are out of our minds with Jesus. We are out of our minds with Jesus. Sometimes that means that what we say and do might look a little crazy to the world and even at times to each other. But if following Jesus, if trusting in God's love is being crazy, then I rejoice that we are out of our minds. (laughs) After all, we're in very good company, for we are part of the beloved community, the family of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.